All right. I think uh, most of us have made our way back. Fantastic. Others yet to, to do so. I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, if you would please, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, where together today we will look at this whole section, 36 verses, and I think you'll see how they hold together. We're working our way all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters, and of course, the end of today will be, at least in terms of chapters, halfway there. So, fantastic, really good, headed towards that wonderful climactic chapter 28. Um, The study sheet in your bulletin I know will be a help to you. Make sure you have that handy. We'll comment on a number of things there. As we come to the text, I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs from a a testimony written by a lady talking about her life. I won't introduce her because she'll do that in the paragraphs that I'm going to read. And I think most of you will recognize her uh, as she describes herself But listen carefully to these words. This is from Christianity Today magazine uh, just about a year ago, May 2018. She says this. You have seen my picture a thousand times. It's a picture that made the world gasp. A picture that defined my life. I'm nine years old, running along a puddled roadway in front of an expressionless soldier, arms outstretched, naked, Shrieking in pain and fear, the dark contour of a napalm cloud billowing in the distance. My own people, the South Vietnamese, had been bombing trade routes used by the Viet Cong rebels. I had not been targeted, of course. I had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Those bombs have brought me immeasurable pain. Even now, 40 years later, I'm still receiving treatment for burns that cover my arms, my back, and my neck. The emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure. And yet, looking back at these past five decades, I realized that those same bombs that brought me so much suffering also brought great healing. Those bombs led me to Christ. She says a little later in the same story, I will forever bear the scars of that day. That picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil of which humanity is capable. But I thank God for that picture. Today, I thank God for everything, even that road. No, especially that road. That story, as I read it a year ago and have had it before me since, um, has reminded me of the roads that each of us are walking to. Sometimes roads that are pleasant to walk, the sun is out and the wind blowing lightly, things are good. Other times, not so much. The road can be confusing and difficult, painful, full of, full of potholes and bombs and all kinds of danger. And yet at the same time, we walk that road and God is with us. Today, as we come to this text, we're going to see four vignettes. I call them windows, four windows of people interacting with Jesus. And there's two different types of interaction. So my title today, a judge or a healer, who is Jesus to you? We're going to see one very difficult circumstance. And we'll talk about that a bit. There's a lot there. And then the other three windows or vignettes, they, they bring us to a different view of Jesus. And in the section there in your study notes called today's text, hungry people, fearful people, needy people, all of them 
who come into contact with Christ. So I want to pray for us that God will help us. Because this text has things to say to you. So pray with me, if you would, please. Father, we come to you today uh, aware of our need for you. We sang that a moment ago. I need you. Oh, I need you. And we do. We do. Sometimes I think even more profoundly than we even realize. Oh, we need you. Yes, we do. So, Father, we come today to your word asking you to open our hearts, to, to, to hear it, to see it, to love it, and then to respond to you, the God who has given us this living word points us to Christ. Father, give us the ability to hear and respond today. That's, that's your work. We ask it of you. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 14, uh, if you look at your study sheet, I'm going to deal with this in two sections, a 1 through 12, under the heading, what shall we do? What shall we do with a guilty conscience? We're going to look at somebody with a guilty conscience, and uh, I should just give you a little heads up, warning, warning. Uh, it's also about you. Now, what should you do with a guilty conscience? Because you, you all know what it's like to have one. I know you do, because you're here. I mean, any human alive, you say, oh, I've never experienced a guilty conscience. Buddy, you are in deep trouble, if that's the case. What do you do with one? And then, of course, the other half, uh, what happens when we bring our needs and our fears to Jesus? I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 and deal with that separately and then move on to, to the next. But let's look together to the Word of God then. Matthew 14, 1 through 12. We read this. At that time... Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, that is to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Well, there you go. Isn't that encouraging? You say, man, I just go to the word of God, have my spirit lifted, and uh, my heart challenged, and that's what I read. You go, man, that's, that's pretty awful. Um... I, I always appreciate, you know, sometimes people look at stories in the Bible that are hard to read or describe some kind of a drastic sin like, like this and think, well, the Bible's full of horrible stories. Ah, hold on there, friend. The Bible addresses life as it really is. You know any horrible stories? It just tells about what people do, including terrible things that people do to each other. It doesn't hold back. I appreciate that. The Bible does not give us a glossed over, you know, everybody's like Mr. Rogers' view of the world. Okay? Not so much. And this is one of those stories. And it's a mess. It's a mess. I tell you here on your study sheet, this is like a Hollywood movie or some kind of a romance novel. 
And, you know, for the sake of uh, what in the world's going on here, I'm going to give you a few more details that secular history provides as to what is this and who are these people and and what's the problem. And it kind of goes like this. There's a whole family under the name of Herod. There's Herod the Great. He was the Herod that was around when Jesus was born, slaughter of the innocents. He was not such a nice guy either. Okay, so that's that's daddy. Now you got one of the sons, Herod, this is Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, and that's a, the Tetrarch is, that's a, that's like a, a small ruler, all right? A mini kingdom, okay? That's, that's a good way to look at that. But Herod Antipas is his name. He is, he is the, the son of Herod the Great's fourth wife, fourth out of ten. I mean, right? Henry VIII had nothing on, on, um, on this guy. Well, so there's Herod Antipas. Now, here, here it gets even more complicated. Again, secular history talks about these folks. So Philip, you see, Philip the brother, they're half-brothers. Um, he's married this young lady called Herodias. Okay, this is his niece. This is Philip and Herod's niece. So Philip marries the niece. So they're both married to other people. Herod shows up for a family visit a little chat with Herodias, proposes marriage, though they're both married to other people. They both divorce the other people, and they get married. All right? So Herodias moves in with Herod Antipas, her other uncle, with her daughter, who we'll meet in a minute. And John, this is very public, John the Baptist says, that's wrong. Knock it off. That's not the way you do it. He calls him out. It's a public sin, and he confronts the public sin in a public way. Now, um, Herod Antipas and, of course, Herodias, they have kind of a a love-hate relationship, you find out, with John the Baptist. It says here, uh, John wanted to to kill him, but he was, sorry, that Herod wanted to kill John, but people knew he was a prophet. Well, in some of the other Gospels, it says that Herod also realized John was some kind of a holy guy and at times wanted to protect him. So you kind of want to, who wants to kill a real holy guy? I mean, that's not so good. But man, he irritates you. So that's Herod's quandary. Now, this scene unfolds. It's not a pretty one. Um, the daughter comes in. She's a young teenager. If all the you know, historical elements play out, she's a young teenager. And she comes in and dances. Now, I, I won't paint too much of a picture of this for you. But this kind of a scene is familiar in history. Dancing girls were common. They weren't dancing, you know, um, a waltz. Uh, this is a drunken birthday party of which there were many and dancing girls were well-documented in history. And so this is Herod's stepdaughter who's doing this dance. I mean, honey, don't. In a way that a bunch of drunken men appreciated. And it's in that setting that he offers, he makes a dumb offer. Uh, you can have whatever you want. And she consults with her mother and says, I'll take his head, please. Now, Herod knows he's been had at this moment. Kind of wants him dead, but not really. Uh, But because of his promise and the guests. Now, what do you make of verse 9? It says, the king was sorry. What do you mean by that? What do you mean he was sorry? Was he sorry? Sorry for what? Was he repentant? Yeah, no, and I'll be inviting you this week in your community groups to really talk about the difference between being sorry and being repentant. There's a huge difference. Some other parts of the Bible I'm going to have you go to. 
But you got to know the difference because often we're sorry. Oh, we're sorry. But that is not the same thing as repentance. Sometimes even when we apologize, we're, we're apologizing for consequences, apologizing for a mess, apologizing as we often say, if you're offended, I apologize. What is that? This is not an apology. That is not repentance. If you're offended, I didn't say I did anything wrong. I just said, you have a problem. That's what I said. So the Bible doesn't call you to just say you're sorry. The Bible calls you to repent. Well, okay. This is a classic example, I say here, of a man who's sorry but not repentant. Now, I don't want you to miss this point because you can look at him and the whole story as it plays out and and miss the, the application to us. What do we do with the truly guilty conscience? What do you do with this? I want you to think about that a bit. We'll talk about it more at the end of our time together today. But there's a difference, isn't there, between true guilt and false guilt? You ever, you ever been afflicted by false guilt? Where you, like you feel bad, but honestly, before God, you didn't do anything wrong before God or people, but you just feel bad. So it's possible to feel guilty and not be guilty. Does that make any sense at all? Okay, come on, guys. Uh, <laughs> You can discuss that later if you got to, but I think there's a difference. Sometimes you talk to me, I feel terrible. You go, well, you know what? I don't think God is offended, and I think you just feel bad, and maybe you don't need to feel. But I'm saying here, a truly guilty conscience. Herod is guilty of gross sin, moral sin. He's done wrong, hasn't he? And in fact, verse 2, I take this to be, this is Macbeth. If you follow Shakespeare, this is Macbeth in verse two. Uh, you'd have to know. I won't tell the whole story, but you'd have to know if you if you follow Shakespeare at all. That that's this is it. So so um, Herod hears about Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead, and he says he's back. That's what verse two says in another translation. This is John. It's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Man, I knew I shouldn't have killed that guy. He has come back from the dead, and I am in so much trouble. Lock the doors. I think verse 2 is a statement of a guilty conscience. It just won't let it go. Now, listen carefully, please. Sometimes people do the wrong thing with a guilty conscience. There are a couple things you can do. Um, if, you're, if you have a guilty conscience, like because you're guilty of something, sometimes people recognize that the reason they feel guilty is they violated the law of God. And so they say, well, then I'm just going to cut myself off from God. I'm going to get rid of him there. That will fix my conscience. Won't it? Well, no is the answer. It won't fix your conscience because getting rid of the one who makes you feel guilty, you think, or the book that so describes it, Uh, That's no way to fix a wounded conscience, a hurting conscience, a guilty conscience. Listen, your conscience is God's gift to you. Did you know this? Most of the time, when your conscience pricks your soul and says, "Uh, uh, uh, uh-uh-uh-uh, shouldn't have done that, you should listen. You should. Paul talks to Timothy about somebody who's got a seared conscience. You don't want one of those. You don't want to be a person with no conscience. You know what we call people with no conscience? Yeah, sociopaths. And it's not pretty to be near one. Okay, no conscience. You don't want to be that. You also do not want to drown out your conscience. When your conscience pokes your spirit, says, uh, 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 you you don't want to do that. You drown out your conscience to your own peril because then you can do something worse and worse and worse and not even hear the music. 
See, it's like turning up the car radio when there's a clanking noise. You know, what clanking noise? I don't hear anything. Well, I know. I know you don't. And the whole thing's about to blow up. And so is your life. If you just keep turning up the radio, not listening to the voice of conscience. Now, you listen. You listen. Well, what do you do with the guilty conscience? More on that in a little bit. Okay? I'm going to move on because we're talking about responses to Jesus. And here's one. He's fearing Jesus as a judge. Rightly so. He's guilty. Now, I want to go to verses 13 to 36. I'm going to read all of those together. These next three windows where you see Jesus interact with people. So, Herod, fearing Jesus as a judge, rightly so. Now, we come to verse 13 then as I read, again, God's word. It says, now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns and when he went ashore, he, he saw, he saw a great crowd. Jesus always sees people. He saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, they, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and they were satisfied. They took up the 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides, besides women and children. Okay, third window. Immediately, he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side. Well, he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which is about 3 to 6 a.m., so it's been a long voyage, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And then the fourth little window in the text. And when they had crossed over, they went, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Wow. So hungry, hungry people, fearful people, needy people. Now, each of these little stories, I know, in, in a sense, warrants a whole sermon, but by taking them in a group together, I think it's easier to look at 
the response of people to Jesus and how he interacts with them. I want to say this as a summary comment, okay, before I comment more specifically about these. In these little stories, you find Jesus doing amazing things, healing people, walking on the water, come on, feeding 5,000 people, or apparently more, with five loaves and two fish. Jay, seriously, do you believe he really did all that? Well, yes, actually I do. Um, And let me tell you why. For one, the Bible says it. It just says it. It's what he did. And further, um, quite frankly, I see no problem with the creator of the universe who called all that is out of nothing, who spoke the worlds into existence. I see no problem with him providing a hot meal. So, you know, as long as you work through Genesis 1, you've got the rest. In the beginning, God created all that is. You know what? If you, if you wrap your head around that miracle, all the others are, are, are frankly, small change. They're a big deal. I'm just saying uh, people look and go, boy, could, can he do this? It's like, kind of. He made everything, made you. I mean, come on. This, like, this is hard work. Well, okay. Anyway, I think he really did it all. So there you go. I think the Bible is exactly true with what it says. Now, verses 13 to, to 21. It's interesting. You have a crowd. Uh, as we read, Jesus sees him. Uh, verse, verse 14 says that he, he, he did some healing. He healed the sick. But it's a small part in this, in this story. The bigger part of the story is Jesus feeding the hungry people. So the healing part is just kind of, you just rolls right by it, Matthew does. And he goes right on to this, this feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. This is one of the stories. In fact, I think maybe the only uh, story of its kind, only miracle that's repeated in all four gospels. You'd have to check me on that, but I think that that's, I think that that's true. But it's, it's, it's striking. Now, some people read this as, a, as an example of the compassion of, people, of Jesus for people, his concern for hunger. And wanting to feed them. And I, I take nothing away from the compassion of Jesus for hurting people, the desire to you know, make sandwiches and so on. Nothing away from that. It's important. I, don't, I just don't think that's the main point. I think the main point in this whole story is the ability of Jesus to do what nobody else could do, that only God could do. I think this is a, 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 a miracle that's pointing to the identity of Jesus. So it's fine if people say, but Jesus fed people, we should, I I get it. And yes, you're right. I understand. Um, But I think the main point that we don't want to miss is that, well, uh, he sees the crowd. He sees the crowd. If you look at your study sheet, there are a couple things I want to comment on. Um, The needy, hungry crowd, of course, is waiting for him when he gets off the boat. I, I, I find the compassion of Jesus especially striking because this is not a crowd who in, as a whole has repented and come to Jesus. They're not walking the aisle. Further, according to John's gospel, John 6, text I have there is a reference, they have questionable motives, meaning after dinner, they look around and went, huh, that was kind of fun. I'm paraphrasing. It says in John's gospel, they thought to come and take him by force and make him their king. They wanted to move him into the White House. Think about this. Look at this. He's kind to people. He loves everybody. He feeds us for nothing. Wouldn't this be a great ruler? So, but Jesus, but Jesus is kind to them, regardless of their motives, regardless of their spiritual response or lack thereof. He's kinder than, than I am. He's probably kinder than you are. He's kind to hurting people. He feeds them. And in verse 20, we're told that 
that they're satisfied. I mentioned already, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over creation. People talk about the laws of nature and man, how Jesus can, I mean, he, he just overrules the laws of nature. My answer is, yeah, he kind of made him. So I think he can, if indeed that's, uh, if you want to put it that way. I, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Now, hungry people, you go to verse 22, there's this next little window into how Jesus treats people and people respond. He, I want you to miss this. He makes them get into a boat. And there are several details here that I think are, are, are so significant. And I hope you find yourself here. Verse 22, every major translation emphasizes in its word choice that Jesus makes them. He compels them. That's the fill in on your study sheet. He compels them. He urges them. It's like, it's like a, he doesn't want them to miss this day at school. He's sending them in. Oh, folks, please, please understand this. Jesus, Jesus has a lesson for his followers. This is not a random boat, a random storm, and something that just happened to take place that day. This, this was a moment planned by God to teach his disciples an important lesson. So yes, in fact, he makes them, he makes them, it says, he makes them get into the boat. Like, hey, should we hang out with you and send the disciples, get, you know, the crowds away? No, he says, get in the boat. Well, should we, you know, leave, not, don't want to leave you, get in the boat. I can just picture this. I said, get in the boat. All right, Jesus, in the boat. Away you go. I don't know if it was like that. And away you go. We're, we're heading out into the, into, across the lake. It's a big lake. Sea of Galilee, like, it's a big lake. Storms often came up. I think this one wasn't random. I think Jesus planned it. He sent them into a storm of his making. How do you feel about that? Follower of Jesus. He said, I have a storm prepared just for you. It's going to scare you to death. You're going to think you're about to die. You're going to get to the place where you're not sure you're going to make it. I love you so much. Bon voyage. That's kind of what happened. He made them get into the boat. And I, I love the descriptors that Matthew uses. So fourth watch of the night, he lets him struggle for a while. It's the middle of the night. He lets him struggle alone. At least they feel like they're alone. He knows right where they're at the whole time. But they feel, you with me here? They feel alone at this time. There's a storm coming up. Jesus, it says, comes to them walking on the water. They're not sure if they're seeing the Grim Reaper or Casper, they do not know. They just see something out there. I can just picture in the boat. One of them saying, do you see something left off the, no, 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 no. I don't see a thing. No, I don't know. I think that there's no, there's no, there's nothing out there. Knock it off, Thomas. You knucklehead row. I can just picture the, the stuff in a boat. These are normal guys in a storm. What are you saying to your friend? Just bail. Come on, quit looking around. There's not scenery to bail. Wind's blowing. There's somebody out there. There is not. Some of you who are realists would have been all over that. Oh, stop it. And then they see Jesus, somebody out there, and they are terrified. Absolutely terrified. And it's by God's plan. Oh, dear friend. It's by God's plan that they're terrified. It's a ghost. They're scared enough, grown men, to cry out in fear. You ever done that? Maybe, maybe really loud or maybe in, inside, 
where you cry out and fear. You are so scared. Some of these guys are fishermen. Some of them aren't. They're scared enough to cry out in fear. By the way, this is, um, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It is. I, I don't have that on your study sheet. This is, this is an example of 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul begins that, that second letter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us. Remember this? Who comforts us in all our tribulations so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then he goes on a little later, same chapter, just to, to talk about how scared he was. He says, we, we thought we were done. We were scared. We, we, we thought we were going to die. And the reason, he says, check it out, verses 8 and 9, I think, Second Corinthians 1, um, is so that we would learn not to trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead. I love that text. You should look it up, jot it down. Second Corinthians one is an example of this. Thank you, Lord, for that. And I, I, I ask you here on your study sheet, I'll be careful how you answer this. Um, was this a kind thing for Jesus to do? Was it kind to send him right into a, sco- a storm that was going to scare him to death? Was this kind You can discuss that in your community group. We know his, his motive. Was it kind? Some will say yes. Some will say, boy, I don't know. Maybe the outcome was kind. Was it kind? Have you ever sailed into a storm like that? Maybe you didn't see it coming. You thought you're going for a happy little boat ride. And oh, it didn't turn out that way. And the wind got going and it got dark and you wondered if you were going to make it. You cried out to God which, by the way, was a very good thing to do. You cried out to God and say, I'm scared to death, and without you, I'm going down. I, I, I note on your study sheet, this is so important. At that moment that they were terrified, they were right where, right where Jesus wanted them to be. I, I, I believe that at times God arranges for us, no, really, arranges for us to sail right into things that will, will keep us from trusting ourselves. It will remind us, you know what, you, you, big boy, big girl, you thought you could fix this, right? You thought you got it. After all, you, you, however many years old, you got this. And by God's plan, he'll take you right into things that will say, you, know, you don't have this. You're, you're not that smart. You can't fix this. Come on, what, what do you think? You, you control what? What is it now? Precious little. And he brings us in love right to that place where we say, God, I am, I'm out. I, I, have, I have no answer. I cannot fix this. I am done. I'm not smart anymore. Oh, God. I need you. Yeah, I need you. Oh, I need you. And at that very moment, you're right where God wants you to be. Because five minutes before, you thought you were pretty smart. Well, this is pretty good. This is good stuff. Jesus cares for hungry people. He cares for fe- fearful people, and he gives them himself. And I don't want you to miss verse 27, please. <clears throat> In the middle of the storm, do you see the words of Jesus? He says three things. Take heart or be of good courage. It is I. And don't be afraid. You've heard me say before that, that the command, fear not, in some form or another, is I think the, the most repeated command in the whole Bible. It's all the way through the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the Psalms, all the way through the New Testament. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Why would you keep saying that? 
Because we have a lot of reasons to be scared is the answer. Fear not, O Jacob. Well, thank you. You're right. I am scared. Come on. I am. Admit it. Own it. Scared here. God constantly, as he shows up, says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Well, in the middle of that, be of good courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. A little little detail here, if I may. Some of you just love these details. You write them down, study them. Wonderful. Others of you go, yeah, that's too much detail for me. Well, here you go anyway. Um, The two little words, as Matthew presents them, are two little Greek words. And it's ego a me. That's important. It's important. I don't usually give you Greek and Hebrew words because most of the time it doesn't matter for most of us. In this case, it kind of does. But ego a me is a familiar phrase for I am. It's the same two words that John uses over and over again in all the I am statements of Jesus. Okay, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the door by me. me. If any man enter in, he'll be say, I am ego a me. Ego, this is John 8 as well, where Jesus is with an antagonistic crowd. And it's going to get dicey in a minute. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, ego a me, I am. Now, the crowd immediately took up stones to stone him. Why? Because <laughs> they blasphemy. Why blasphemy? What do you mean? Here's the deal. They recognized Jesus' words as a, as a, like a quote from Exodus 3 where Moses stands before God and they have that conversation, you know, what shall I say your name is? And God says, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. Uh, I am. I am. Well, in the Greek translation of the old Testament, guess what two words are there? <laughs> yeah, I am ego a me. And these writers, uh, the, the, sorry, the Jewish crowd listening, they knew what he meant. That's why in John 8, they took up stones to stone him. So here in the midst of the storm, here's my point. Why are we talking about this? In the midst of the storm, Jesus says, take heart, be of good courage. I am. The God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who made all that is. I'm with you in the storm. Emmanuel, God with us. I am. He's here. The resurrection of the life, the door, the life, all of those things, the I am. I'm, I'm the one who's with you. Who do you think is, is, is with you in the storm? No, it's God himself who walks on the waves, calms the sea. That's why he could say, be of good courage. I am is here. Don't be afraid. All the resources of God himself in the midst of the storm. Wow, that, that's, that's just amazing stuff. I think his, his followers heard it. Interesting little story of Peter walking on the water. That's good, that's good. I want to go to that fourth little vignette, verse 34. When they'd crossed over, they came to Gennesaret, and of course, word got out right away. I really love this little par- uh, paragraph because it talks about people who want to come, and look at this, all they want to do is touch the fringe of his garment. How much of Jesus do they know they need? <laughs> I, I, just a little. I just, I just need to touch him. I don't need like an hour of his time. I don't need an office visit. I, I don't need him to move in with me. I just, I just need just, just a touch, and he'll make me well. This is similar to the uh, lady we met previously with the issue of blood, 12 years. I just need to touch the hem of his garment, and he'll heal me. I know he will. I know he'll be there for me. Just, just a bit. Just a touch. And they're right. They're right. That's exactly what Jesus does. And I think, I don't think Jesus is walking down the road going, uh, oblivious. 
to all those who come just, to, just for a touch. I think he knows every single one of them by name. Sarah, Benjamin, Mary. I don't think anybody ever came and touched his robe without him knowing, knowing their deal. You're not just a face in the crowd to Jesus. He knows your name. He knows your stuff. Now, today then, a judge or a healer, a judge or a healer. We started by talking about Herod. And I asked you to be thinking about this. What do you do with a truly guilty conscience? Uh, again, sometimes we debate, is it real guilt, false guilt? You know, just forget that for a minute, trying to divide those two. It's something to think about later. But for our purposes today, let's just assume you're really guilty. So, so what do you do with that? Listen, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Jesus died for guilty people. So rather than you trying to explain, you know, you had a bad day, you had low blood sugar, it's all your family because they're all mad people or whatever, you inherited it. Whatever excuse you give for messing up, you can just forget it. Just stop it. Don't do that. Just own it and say, I messed up. I did. I'm guilty. You don't have to explain it to God. He knows. So you tell him, God, here I am, the guilty one. It's like naked before God. I, don't, I, I can't pretend anything. All the excuses aside, I did it. I meant it. Might have even enjoyed it. And I'm guilty. What do you do with that? You bring it to Jesus because he died exactly for that. So you own it before him. You just fess up, man. And you say, oh God, I thank you that Jesus died for this. Now, the Bible talks about repentance. Not just owning it. If you own it and say, yep, that's me. You keep doing it. I mean, come on. You're just like Herod over here. Feel sorry, but nothing changed. He didn't call you to feel sorry. He called you to turn and go the other way. So stop whatever it is you're doing you shouldn't do, right? I mean, come on. Jesus wants to help you with that. So you come and own it, whatever that is. You say, God, I, you're going to have to help me. I can't. I am powerless to change my heart. Are you any good at this? Can you change your heart just like that? No, you come to God and say, God, this is my struggle. This is my problem. These are the things that my heart longs for. I long for, oh God, you're going to have to help me. And this is step one. That's step one. That's what you do with a guilty conscience. You come to God. It's not an angry judge. No, you come to him, Jesus, who died on the cross for your sin. You tell him the truth. Humble yourself before him. I put in your study sheet. Confess the truth about you. Broken, bankrupt, utterly unable to fix yourself. Run to him and just tell him the whole story. Ask for his help to bring life change, true substantive life change, not only outward, but inward. That's what Jesus is all about. I want you to see the goodness of Jesus. Hungry people are fed. Fearful disciples are safe and comforted. Sick people made well. I love this. Jesus, a judge or a healer. Who is Jesus to you? On your study sheet, there a place for you to either actually with a pen or just mentally to write down a specific area of need that you have today that you come to Jesus with. It might be about you. It might be about somebody else. But I ask you there, you may write something down. You might not because somebody else might read it. and You don't want them to know. I get it. But I'm asking you to think about that. What specific area of need do you have today with which that you come to Jesus with? You bring it to him. What is it for you? And my hunch is that every person here can fill in the blank. And I want to pray for us. If you'd stand with me.
Father, I thank you for every person here, every one of us known to you by name, life circumstance. We don't, we don't have to pretend anything before you. We don't have to put on a show. We don't have to pretend that we're smarter than we are. We don't have to pretend we have it all together because we really don't. Father, we just come to you today with whatever we've written down there. Father, if there are areas to confess before you as sin, I pray that you'd give that ability to every person here for whom that's kind of the deal today. Ability to truly repent, to see sin as truly bad, truly an offense before you. And then at the very same time, to know the the joy of forgiveness because of Jesus. Father, all kinds of other life problems we bring to you. Our biggest life problem really is, is us. My own heart my own sinful heart. I want things you haven't given. (laughs) I love things that you don't love. Lord, that's my heart. That's our hearts. We chase things. We're idol factories. Oh God, would you help us? Save us day by day. Point us constantly to Jesus. Thank you for your word. Keep speaking to us as we go from here. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.